Today on Queer Money, we have an amazing episode for you. From time to time, we get the opportunity to meet some great people. And last month, at one of the speaking engagements that John and I attended, we met Patrick Riley, a bigger-than-life personality that has done so much work, not only for himself, but for gay black men around the country. He turned the camera on himself on the Oprah show and came out to not only his family, but to 20 million people. He tells us part of what that was like, but also how he developed the courage and the tenacity to become the successful person that he is today, and how he is using his success today not only to help himself and the LGBT community, but to mentor young people near and dear in his own community so that they can have examples of success that we all learn from and yearn for on a regular basis. So join us here over the next 50 to 60 minutes as we delve into the life of Patrick Riley. We want to remind you once again that this show is sponsored by Mass Mutual. Mass Mutual cares about our community and wants us to share stories like this so that we can all be a success, whether that's financially, in our careers, or in our confidence as members of the LGBTQ community. Thank you, Mass Mutual, for supporting us. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. We are really excited to have Patrick Riley with us today. He is a producer, personality, entertainment, all-around renaissance man. We met him at a speaking engagement we were at a couple of, about a month ago, and he gave the most amazing presentation about his story, and it was so inspirational, and it moved us. So we thought we just have to have him on Queer Money so he can tell his story, share what he knows with our audience, and hopefully inspire them. So welcome, Patrick Riley. Thank you for having us. And I have to sort of say right back at you, the three <laughs> guys. I enjoyed your presentation so and hoped that you would invite me on Queer Money. So I'm <laughs> thrilled to be here. Absolutely. We, we love having you. So anytime you want to come back, please, please let us know. Thank um, you. Sure thing. So I gave you a very truncated description of who you are. Would you mind sharing with our audience? <laughs> There's so much more than who, what he just said. <laughs> who Patrick Riley is? <laughs> oh, is this where I name drop and go on and on? Now? Well, I'll tell you this. I am an independent producer, personality, and writer based in New York City. I have been in the business for a little over 20 years. And my clients, as I am an independent field producer primarily, my main and most lucrative client was The Oprah Winfrey Show. And I field produced segments, uh, a lot of pop culture, entertainment, spiritual segments for that show over the many years from 98 until its wrap in 2012. And I continue to contribute as a freelancer to Oprah Winfrey Network. A lot of Oprah Where They Now uh, assignments come my way as a field producer, many of them East Coast based. But I have since the show wrapped, expanded and diversified. So I attract other clientele, the likes of the Wendy Williams Show, BET Creative Services, NBC, BLK, for whom I do digital corresponding as well as online Q&A interviews for them. I have executive produced the 2015-16 The More You Know campaign for NBC at large or NBC Universal. So I attract a lot of independent projects that still play in that realm of pop culture and entertainment and human interest, kind of Oprah 2.0, if you will. (laughs) What's the one show on Oprah's own network right now, the Sunday spiritual one? Oh, oh, Super Soul Sunday. Super Soul Sunday. Oh, yeah. We, we want to go to that show someday. <laughs> we we catch, uh, catch some of that stuff. Let, let's put it out there. I have been assigned to do some of the tape. It's obviously a show that's based on sitting on the lawn of the promised land. That is Oprah's <laughs> home in Montecito. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's mostly conversation. But whenever they do have tape or have a need for B-roll, if it's applicable and fits my schedule, they will assign me to do uh, things like that. I remember she interviewed... One of her book club authors, The Twelve Tribes of Hattie, the name is escaping me, the author, but I went to Iowa to interview her at a writer's workshop and we did a lot of great B-roll, a lot of on the porch interviews that were woven into what was an actual interview that she did with Oprah. 
So uh, I do sometimes contribute to that, but that's not my main client. But, you know, let's keep networking in that yeah. direction. Let's put it out <laughs> exactly. there. Put it out exactly. There. And I'm going to sound ignorant here. Just to make sure I'm clear. A field producer, I'm assuming, is a producer who goes, who's not generally in the studio. They're kind of doing more on the street, in the home kind of Correct. Uh, production. I, in 1998, when the Oprah show uh, was sort of moving out of the what talk looked like at the time and transitioning into something more thoughtful and spiritual. And there was a little more compassion put into the people, meaning the subjects, the talk subjects. And so us field producers, much like correspondents, we'd go into the field to interview the subjects in their domain or in a domain that is remote. We would then supervise the crews to make sure we gather the footage and the things that we need to then turn all of that into an edited piece. And, you know, from 98 until the end, over did a lot of tossing to great tape, you know, wonderful mm-hmm. tape that makes you cry and laugh and right. all of that. And so I, I'm one of the conduits who would be assigned to do that kind of thing. And that is, in essence, the kind of way that I work with other clients as well, though I still do some in-studio things. Now it's more uh, what the project requires, if you will. Gotcha. And so how does somebody get into that line of work? What you know, what, what took you from birth to becoming a field producer for <laughs> Oprah Winfrey and Wendy Williams? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Well, it started at my high school graduation. I love to say it. It was 1988. And I told the local newscaster, I was a teleprompter for the local news. So they came to my graduation to cover me. I mean, it was a local graduation in Savannah, Georgia. But and I told them that by in 10 years, I would be working with Miss Oprah Winfrey. I, you know, I just threw it out there. And nice. by 98, the 10 year reunion, I was a freelance producer on contract with the Oprah Winfrey show. So awesome. it was a vision I had. But in order to get there, I studied mass communications and broadcast journalism at Morehouse, did a lot of extra study at Clark Atlanta University, which has a big mass comm program. I studied at the program that Spike Lee studied at Sam Jackson came through. Morehouse, having studied through that program. Bill Nunn, who was in Sister Act, wonderful Morehouse alum who we just lost, but he was a wonderful mentor, also studied there. So a lot of great folks have studied media, entertainment, arts, and culture through the historically Black college that is Morehouse College and through the historically Black university system that is the Atlanta university system down in Atlanta, Georgia. And so through that line of study. I did a lot of interning and all those things that you have to do to get exposure to the business. And I thought I would be a news reporter, just sort of kind of, you know, following the fires and the homicides and all that that looks like. But I early on realized that that wasn't going to be my direction. I knew that (laughs) I would be in mass media, but I would be attracting my core passion. And my core passion centered around entertainment and pop culture and Divas and, and all <laughs> so yeah. I, Beyonce, I, Oprah, and Wendy Williams—that's some yeah. divas and Diana Ross. <laughs> so to that end, I have—I think I attracted that ilk of work, but I did have to go through the trenches of local news reporting and local news producing to get to a national stage, the likes of Oprah. Right. I I will to say after hearing your presentation and your story at the LGBT event that we we spoke at as well, you are much more, like you say, a personality than someone who just sits behind a camera and reads the news or is standing in the street reporting on a a car accident or a homicide. There's so much more entertainment to you. (laughs) Yeah, I discovered that early on. And I think you know, my dad's 83 years old. He has always said or has continued to say throughout the years when I did everything he didn't want me to do, including, you know, instead of going to University of Georgia, where I could have had a almost full ride with the help of the Air Force Alumni Association, I wanted to go to the private black college that wasn't giving me any money. But um, (laughs) he knew that there was something special about that school. That's also Martin Luther King's alma mater. So all of those things informed my desire to uh, be the best black man I could by going to Morehouse. So my dad said, okay, well, if he wants to be the best black man he can, let him go to Morehouse. (laughs) He says, but you should study engineering, you know, because he's reading consumer reports. He's reading all these great magazines that are saying engineering is the future. And I said, no, dad, I'm going to do mass comm and I'm going to study not only what it is to be on camera, but I want to learn the nuts and bolts of not just TV, radio, film. I want to do it all, you know, and he's like, "Uh, it's not exactly what I had in mind for you, but go on. (laughs) So it would turn out that that was our pattern. I didn't realize until he told me recently that my ambitions were felt early on. 
If we were going to the library at three years old and he was taking me, I was going straight to the art and dance section. And he's saying, do you sure you sure you don't want a sports book? And I'm like, no, I but I would, you know what I would do? I would take like the Harlem Globetrotters because that gave me a, a lesson on the Harlem Renaissance alongside a little bit of an athletic lesson. You know what nice, I mean? Exactly. Nice. Well, that's a great segue because I want to take a, a step back a little bit during your presentation. I'm going to botch this up. So I'll let you assist me. During your presentation, you, you told a story about how when you were growing up, you kept getting being told or getting vibes from your family that you shouldn't be so flamboyant or shouldn't be so out. Um, and every time they kind of told you to tone it down, you kind of went bigger and badder <laughs> until one day you were working with or performing with Diana Ross. Could you share that story again? Well, you know, growing up in the Bible Belt, I am the uh, son. I'm the youngest of three. I'm born in Tokyo, Japan, son of an Air Force chief master sergeant, retired chief master sergeant. Not the toughest guy, but you know, he's a straight guy. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so in our family, there's just a reverence for, I, I don't know, what do we say? Heterosexual form, <laughs> if, if that's a phrase. And I didn't always have that form. I didn't always want to go outside and play ball. So I wanted to sometimes jump from couch to coffee table with a high kick because I just seen <laughs> Leroy from Fame and it was just so fabulous. Or I just seen Debbie Allen say, you want fame? This is how you get it. You do that high kick and get out there, girl. And I wanted to get out there, girl, you know, and they would say, would you stop flouncing around this house? Would you stop dancing around the house like a sissy? Would you stop singing at the top of your lungs like a diva? Could you sing in your baritone voice? These are the things they would say to me. And I would respond. I would sort of do what I needed to do to keep the comfort of that particular conflict at bay. But it was obvious that what was inside of me was inside of me. So I contained it in their presence, but I still needed to have a place to express it. So, you know, in school, I was allowed to be in drama. They didn't allow me to do dance, but I was allowed to do drama. So as long as there was a musical going on in the drama <laughs> course, then I got the best of both worlds. Right. I always found these safe places to express myself, even though I knew the arts wasn't the direction they wanted me to go in, because somehow as stigma and homophobia in the Black community goes, it must mean something. And if it means that, then it's not a good thing. The that being that I'm gay. <laughs> right. You also told us a little bit about your coming out story. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that? And I, part, part of the reason, Patrick, that we will really want you to share this story is we think that there are still so many, even though we live in the world we do today, there are so many young men and women who struggle with coming out, whether they live in a major metropolitan area where it's in general accepted, or they live in a small town in Georgia or Texas or South Dakota. Stories about coming out and bridging from that fear over to your being your true self, I think is really helpful. So do you mind sharing a little bit about that? I don't mind. When I think coming out, I came out in, in layers. I came out obviously to close friends first. I came out to my family eventually by my mid-20s. And we're talking a very conservative family that heard me, received it reluctantly, but it wasn't anything that got explored. They didn't really want to know what love looked like on me. They, by that time, knew I was accomplished and was doing the right thing with my career and my life. And so if that's what that means, then let him live his life. But my family personally wasn't interested in what love looked like on me and what being gay truly meant and what it truly looked like for their own insane shame around homosexuality and for their own religious thoughts around it and from their own upbringing and rearing. So fast forward to 2005, when I'd been with the Oprah show as a contract freelance field producer for, I guess, seven years by that point. Many times up to that point, I had been seen on camera in ways that made all of my people down south and all over very proud. If They were uh, breaking the fourth wall to have me surprise a housewife with a free trip or something like that. Well, on this particular assignment that I got from the Oprah show, it was a show titled When I Knew I Was Gay. And they scheduled me to interview a half dozen people of notables who would share that story. People like Carson Kressley, Billy Porter, people who you knew. 
But what Oprah felt, I'm told by the producers, is that there wasn't enough diversity in those testimonials. And one quick thought was, well, you know, Patrick is on camera. He's comfortable on camera. Why not have him, if he's agreeable, share his story of when he knew he was gay, you know? And so my immediate thoughts were really of my family, the family from which I come, the family that knew but would never want me to go and talk to 20 million people about it all over the world. This is the family that knew but probably never told anybody in their circle that the son was gay or that the brother was gay, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm, right. And so I agreed to do the show reluctantly, not because I didn't want to share my story, but because I knew it would make them feel a kind of way. And the way they felt was demonstrated by the day the show aired. And normally when I'm on the show or when the credit rolls and you see my name or anything like that, you I hear the phone ring and I'm hearing everybody from the church down south tell me how much they are proud of me and how much they love seeing me for the two minutes, the two seconds, however long I <laughs> was on the Oprah show. Here I was featured in this well-crafted, produced piece. and when the show ended, you could hear a pin drop. Not one call from Georgia. Not one call from my father, my sister, my brother. Not one call. And I think I would wait four to five days before I would maybe pick up the phone and call, or maybe someone called about something unrelated, which then made me say, did you see the show? <laughs> uh-huh. And the answers all around when I finally got around to each family member was yes. And there was nothing else. They gave me nothing else. So it was like a, a wall of shame. And eventually I did have a conversation with my brother, who's perhaps the most homophobic of the bunch. He was honest in his shame and I appreciated his honesty. He thought somehow that it belied what I was to his son, my nephew, who at the time was in high school, and he somehow thought that this was going to be a shame on my Savannah-based nephew. What he didn't know is the nephew and I had just come back from the mall, and I think my nephew had booked me on a mall tour, because every store we went to, he had a classmate who was excited to meet the uncle. <laughs> the uncle. So I, what I learned is that as ignorant as my own family had become around this subject, around me, around my desire to be open and truthful, blessedly, my nephew didn't get bitten by that bug. And so he was no less proud of me. In fact, he was obviously more proud. He exhausted me that day in the mall. <laughs> That's awesome. So I call his response the sign of the future. I call their response the sign of the past. And somewhere along the way, we've met in the middle, you know, over these many years. Keep in right. mind, that was 2005. Absolutely. Wow, that's a, a double-edged sword kind of story there. But it's great that your that your nephew accepted you and his friends, and it seemed like they accepted you. That's great. Yeah, a blessing. A blessing, I call it. You know, because again, no matter my intellect around the unreasonable thoughts they may have around homophobia, being gay, all of that, it still hurts when you don't get validation from your family. You know, <laughs> in particular, the family from which you come. You know, these are the people who truly should know what lies beneath because right. they've been editing it and correcting it since the beginning. You know what I mean? So yeah. it, it was a little disappointing, but I did have some folks in my corner. I appreciate your story very much because I was also raised in a very religious household. My dad was former military, although when I was growing up, he was not in the military. I was born on a military base, but yes. uh, shortly after he left, but that kind of sticks and that mentality sticks, this, this strictness. It was very difficult to come out to my family. I knew that I would lose them all because of their religion and their choices of how they feel about my lifestyle or who I love, like you said, how yeah. love looks on you. And it's nice to hear other families who over a time period soften and see some progress and some changes. And I sometimes hope that will happen to me, but it makes me think about the challenges that we face as we mature as gay men. Yeah. Uh, and especially for you as a gay black man in that particular time period in the late 80s, it was not, it still is not easy to be a young gay black man. No. Um, what do you think about some of those challenges that you have faced and how have you overcome those? What I'm thinking about is our listeners who may be in the same situation, they're facing, whether it's financial or maybe 
limiting beliefs about themselves because they yeah. are a gay black man or a gay person of color? Well, I'll tell you a few things come to mind. One thing that comes to mind is uh, that, well, you know, it's the challenge of communication and being able to communicate with your loved ones about your life. Just, you know, sort of what I said earlier, but I'm thinking pointedly about that very conversation with my brother in which he wanted me to be ashamed of going on the air and, you know, telling my gay testimonial to the world. He wanted me to know that my father had researched famous people with celebrities with gay kids from a space of wanting to understand. But he's telling me this. He's chastising me. He says, you have our father researching uh, famous people with gay kids. And he's saying this like it's a horrible thing. And I said, no, what you're telling me is that our father, who's older than any of us, is taking a beat to catch up with something he doesn't understand in the best way he knows how research. He's a smart guy. You know, mm-hmm. I said, he's a retired chief master sergeant from the Air Force. He's not a dummy, you know. And that moved me in a way that my brother didn't want it. He wanted me to be distracted because I'm bothering our brother. I mean, our father. I'm like, no, right. this is a positive thing. And so over time, what I learned is my own patience to communicate with the ignorance has helped me feel more a part of my family. But at the time, that was really one of the biggest challenges is sort of knowing that I'm going home for Christmas and I'm not going to have the luxury of a true sharing, a true fellowship. You know what I mean? Because it would be based on what my life looks like 24-7 and it does not look like I'm not talking about my love and it does not look like I'm not talking about my lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And so that's a big challenge. I know for uh, me as a Black LGBTQ and many of my peers and colleagues who, some of whom at 40 plus are still not out to their families. You know, they live a gay life until they go home. Mm -hmm. And that was something that was a big challenge for me because it it connected me then to those wrong feelings. It connected me to not the happy feelings during the holidays, but to something a little more depressing. And that wasn't how I wanted to feel during holidays, you know, during holiday time. So I challenged myself to do that honest version of a conversation in doses because they can't handle too much. <laughs> but over time, over time, that, some has sugar. Me, that has helped me to kind of get right. But the other thing is, because I uh, mentioned in that talk that we did last month, the concept of being single, black, gay man with a great job in New York City, working high profile fare, you know, by the time I left Atlanta for New York, it was a great life that would lead a lot of people to come and want to borrow money. And I thought the time and the energy that so many of these loved ones have spent over these many years judging and conditioning my situation, they sure aren't taking any beats to ask me for this money, you know? And so that's a challenge. That was like a challenge because it was a challenge of my, what's the right thing to do, you know? And I was the one with the money. It wasn't like I was comparing apples to apples, you know, I was the one that was making this amount of money that would make them come to me and be someone who could be a help to my family members. But did I want to be helpful to these people who were so homophobic to me all these many years? That kind of thing. That was a big challenge. And then connected to that is the concept of overcompensating to fill that hole. And that hole is filled with retail therapy and (sighs) trips and travel and we've got to go to Martha's Vineyard, but it's got to be the best house in Martha's Vineyard, that whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so that was a real 20 something, early 30 something bit that I went through as well, realizing that in order for me to really shape my future and in order for me to value myself for my future, it was time to begin to put something away. (laughs) You know, it was time (laughs) to begin to learn the art of the staycation and to make that just as joyful. You know, it was also good to be able to say no when those family members asked for money and to give maybe uh, enough of a reason why so they feel and could feel what I was struggling through with that dilemma. Mm-hmm. And over time, like my brother now, my partner of 12 years, his name is Ant. And so my brother now, he's still a little homophobic. <laughs> you know, we have made progress. But before he will ask me for money, he will say, how is Ant? 
<laughs> and I'm like, you know what? You better ask about somebody before you even think about it. <laughs> before for asking time. for the Benjamins. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing. You gave some great pointers there for anybody who's struggling coming out or, or dealing with their family. And I especially like that you touched on the financial repercussions that you struggled with in terms of overspending and trying to fill some sort of hole in your soul, so to speak, because that's mine and David's story. We, looking back on it, we amassed a whole bunch of debt simply because we were trying to make up for feelings of inadequacy and feelings of inferiority complexes from growing up. And we wanted to sort of mask that pain. And it wasn't until after we realized, oh my gosh, we're digging a worse hole for ourselves that we started to dig ourselves out of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, fashion comes back around, you know, keep that waistline right. You're still going to be in vogue. <laughs> That's true. We want to take a second here and just take a break. We love hearing Patrick's story. We want to remind you, though, that our show today is being brought to you by Mass Mutual. Mass Mutual wants us to be financial successes. They understand that the reason for that is because it allows us to live bigger and better lives. Thanks again, Mass Mutual. And let's get back to our conversation with Patrick. So especially since the presidential election, it seems that many in the LGBT community and from my perspective, and I'm just looking into it from other seemingly marginalized groups, they're struggling with how they're going to be able to become successful in today's America. How are they going to be able to overcome the challenges, whether real or perceived? What is your advice to those individuals? So the advice to the individuals who feel in these times that what? Say yeah, that how, do I, how do I succeed in today's America as a gay black man? Or how do I succeed in today's America as an LGBT person? Well, I'll tell you, as a gay black man, I would say be mindful that the president that many of us had a hand in reelecting, Obama, is the first in the history of that post to reference LGBTQ in a way that is um, rounder and more profound, that is shifting. My 83-year-old dad, just over Christmas, were talking about how many African-Americans at the time were saying, what did Obama really do for Black people? What has he really done for me? And I said to my dad, you know, I'll tell you one thing he did for this Black man. He's the first man to say gay, LGBTQ. And my father then filled in my blank and he said, and it not mean anything negative. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my gosh, how well have I trained this? <laughs> right. Talking about my dad, right? right? But I thought that's an affirming mindset for us to have. Now we know that there's less of a conversation around our rights, our equality. There are elements of movement that are challenged now inside the new administration. But I think we have to trust that the consciousness as polarizing as things are right now, that the consciousness of society is on our side. We have to really challenge ourselves beyond this expectation that society is not on our side. We really have to count those small blessings that are already in place. You know, 12 years ago, the conversation with my boyfriend was, are you going to come out to your family? Are you going to move from Denver? I know you guys are Denver-based. He's Denver-based. Are you going to move from Denver to New York? You know, kind of basic questions because we weren't really kind of recognized inside of the law. Three, four years later, it's like, are you going to get married? Are you going to get divorced? Are you gonna, <laughs> right. I'm like, what's going on? These are things that have happened in our lifetime that we did not think were going to happen. Petty pace, a ways to go, yes. But I think sometimes we have to stop our inner recordings because they are outdated. And I say this not outside looking in. I say this because I still play some of those recordings Mm -hmm. from my childhood and they are so outdated for what the truth is. You know, the truth of my family's shame when I did Oprah when I knew I was gay is that two months later, we won a GLAAD award, you know, the Gay and Lesbian Anti-Defamation League Mm -hmm. award for using the media to be a difference around images and around our esteem. And I know that six months after that, someone stopped me on the street in front of the Ed Sullivan Theater to tell me that I saved his life. And I'm this is like an wow. Oprah Super fan who recognized me. Like, I mean, like, why are you recognizing me? It's the Oprah show. But he recognized me from that show because that show meant something to him. 
we got lots of letters. They sent these letters to me. The producers sent bags of letters to me from people who were moved by my testimonial. So for me to have been stuck in the shame of something that is societal or that comes from a backwards way of thinking that is our family, there's an outward focus at play. And if we can kind of focus on the outward focus and focus a little less inward, you really do get to see the benefits of things changing and things moving. And it's not perfect. It doesn't happen overnight. It has not stopped happening just because I'm accomplished and I can now, you know, command an audience to speak of my testimonial. No, it is something that we have to challenge ourselves to do every day. I do. And I just recommend people get in touch with the reality that that inner voice is not always the truth. Right. Right. I I think that's that's profound. And I'm so happy that you said that. And I think that in times when it seems like progress is going to be slower or harder, that it's incumbent upon those of us who have a platform, whether big or small, to continue to try to move the dialogue forward towards progress and inclusivity. Absolutely. One thing that I said to that very point, and one thing that I do that I will continue to do, and I do it as a Black gay man, and it is uh, I speak to as many gay straight alliances around town here in New York, all the boroughs, also in Jersey as I can. I funnel that through a wonderful LGBTQ mentoring and scholarship organization, Live Out Loud, that's liveoutloud.info. They engaged me, I'd say, gosh, 12, 13 years ago because they were trying to diversify their numbers of role models who would come in as LGBTQ to speak to these students at these wonderful gay straight alliances and at these career days. And I told them they could use me anytime. And after they funneled me into the program, they asked me for more of my friends of color. And so I have been a blessed conduit of being able to speak to young kids who are questioning, young kids who know, young kids who want to know more, young kids who want to be assured that it gets better. You know, we've uh, heard about those campaigns around Mm -hmm. across the globe. And so I make it a point to when I'm feeling a little bad about myself, do that kind of thing. You know, I'm a young Black journalist. I do a lot of work with NABJ. Black associations and organizations are no different than the Black church where homosexuality is. It's don't ask, don't tell, very much like the military once was. And so um, as a member of the National Association of Black Journalists since 90, as a student, I figured that my career would be one where I did not marry my private life, my orientation to my professional. I thought I'd probably just be a Max Headroom delivering the news, you know, without (laughs) the flair and the, you know, the zest and the effervescence that I am that I give myself permission to exude today. And so what's interesting is that I didn't expect that that would happen. But what is interesting is that that organization in 2005, there was a group of Black LGBTQ journalists who said, you know what, it's time that we sort of come out and that we care for each other, you know, that we look at what our unique issues are, what our unique crosses to bear are in the industry. You know, that was the beginning of us looking at what was going on around same-sex legislation, domestic partnership benefits, those kinds of things. And the only way we were going to be able to value ourselves as professional gay journalists was to be able to put that on the table of conversation that we have all of our other concerns and issues are. You know, we had begun to do great work for women in the business. We wanted to begin to do that same work for LGBTQ. Well, believe it or not, there was resistance in this great organization that had loved all of us because we sort of kept it separate. But when we wanted to bring that truth to the table and create an LGBT task force, there was initially resistance. And I learned in what was a closed session executive board meeting that one of the key reasons that many of the homophobes and people who might have wanted to vote against it did not vote against it is because of whose name was on that list. And one of those names was mine. And so a shame on me if I couldn't come out at that point in my career, given my platform, given what I had attracted professionally in the way of clients like Oprah, et cetera, shame on me if I couldn't not only donate my name, but my life and my truth to that ballot to have there now be a National Association of Black Journalists LGBTQ task force that lives today. And and through what we know is that truth, 
we do see more LGBTQ of color on the air. Could there be more? Absolutely. Could there be more of us who are willing to come out? Absolutely. But how many more are feeling engaged and, and enrolled for it? Another of the presenters who was with us at our event last month, Ernest Owens from Philadelphia, he will be honored this year as the NABJ Emerging Journalist of the Year. So he's standing on my shoulders. I, I continue to say, I'm going to say it everywhere, and, he, and he's okay with it. He's going to cut my check at the end of the, uh, at the end of You this make sure campaign. you get your money. <laughs> but, well, but it really is a look back and a wow when you take a moment. I can't forget that meeting in 2006 for what I know is what the reality is now. You know, a young man, really, he just hit me up yesterday. He says, I'm young, black, gay, and poor as a young reporter in his first market. You know, uh, reporters in TV don't make good money at the beginning. In fact, they may not make good money for a few years into the business. And so he wants to come to our convention. And so I'm an independent, no different. I'm not independently wealthy, but obviously the outward focus and the empathy that I have for a young 21-year-old to come to me in a mentoring spirit and say, I need a little help, support to get to this convention. Obviously, that's a check I want to write, you know, and that's a check I'm going to write maybe in August before I will loan a family member some money. You see what I'm saying? So so that's where I make my choices so that I know I'm kind of doing the big picture goodness and I am still doing right by my family without enabling them. I'm keeping them honest and true and accountable to to my feelings and my need and that whole thing as well. Well, I I have to thank you because the LGBT community does stand on your shoulders today and people like you who embodied what Harvey Milk said, come out to everybody because it's harder for them to vote against us if they know us. Yeah, that's it. And that's a bottom line. You know, walking in Harlem on an average night, it's in a very firming, wonderful place. But, you know, certain blocks, you may want to watch that twist, Patrick. You may want, I may not want to be holding to my man's hand on that, on this particular block. But the truth is, I don't have to decode, uncode anymore. And I don't have to, you know, and we know there's still hate around there. There's hate out and about and all around. But I don't feel that fear anymore. I'm just thrilled for the liberation from it. And I just pray for my protection if it ever comes against something that resists it. But I'm thrilled to know that I don't have to turn it on and off. You know, my favorite Diva Diana Ross is a song called The Boss, where she says, I was so right, thought I could turn emotion on and off. I was so sure. But love taught me who was the boss. (laughs) So I, I feel like we should all kind of be our own bosses in that regard. Listen Definitely. to Diana. Yep. You know, I'm always going <laughs> to Diana. You know that. <laughs> right. I'm going to change the course of this conversation a little bit. Um, you're a very successful gay man. Wherever there is a success, there's always a half dozen or more mistakes. So would you mind sharing with our listeners some of the mistakes that you've learned from that you can maybe help them avoid or at least see coming down the road? Well, spending too much money at a time where the economy was great because, you know, when you're young and happening... And, you know, everything comes around. You know, the expectation is that the ride will last forever and and the ride doesn't last forever. And there are ebbs and flows with the economy. And so one of those things that I tell every 20 something and that I told my that I tell my 20 something self whenever a picture pops across my screensaver, (laughs) I say, save your money, because the truth is, if you are living your best life and if you are your true self, you don't have to pay for it. You don't have to pay for it. And those are mistakes that I made. And then the reverse of that, that still plays to that disease to please over uh, compensate, like me, like me, like me, uh, this other thing I'm going to say is don't give everything away for free. It's a catch-22. Because I find in the context of my platonic girlfriends, they love having their best gay friend. There's a lean there, you know, there's a lean there if they maybe don't have a man or boyfriend or a husband at the time. There's a lean there. And I find, I tell my gays, because I see it at play, <laughs> and I say, be mindful. You know, your girlfriend, your best girlfriend, she shouldn't be holding your bag, per se. But you know what? Sometimes she can actually accommodate you on a night out. It's not about 
I've seen this happen so many times where the girl's calling you because her date canceled. Now she wants you to cancel maybe your booty call for the, for the, (laughs) and I'm saying, I've seen it happen so many times and I'm saying, guys, let's, you know, if it's the reverse for our lesbians and our, our trans and our cues as well. I mean, whatever that scenario is around platonic friends who just think that the gay guy is always going to be available, whatever that is, I'm saying get right about communicating that you're not always going to be available. It's a big thing because I think we give a lot away. Mm. And what I'm finding from the time that I made mistakes giving it away for free to when I started appraising it, some people couldn't handle the appraisal. Some people couldn't handle the quote, if you know what I mean. Some Mm -hmm. people couldn't handle reciprocity. Yeah. And I just think it's important for us to not make mistakes around people who are with us for the wrong reasons. Choose reciprocity. Choose what is for you, not always what looks good on your Instagram page. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know what? Those are mistakes I used to make. I mean, you can look, the pages of Life of Riley would only be pretty pictures in 2005, but (laughs) I've learned, I I, I befriend people who are beautiful on the inside and out. You know what I mean? And and if not the out, you better know that inside is banging. You know what I mean? So (laughs) it's a superficial piece that connects to our self-worth that plays out early on in our gay evolution. And I've seen it too many times to not say something about it. (laughs) It, it, What you just said there reminds me a lot of what Stephen Covey said in the, I think it's Seven Habits Habits book, where he mentions that you cannot be always taking money out of the emotional bank account. You know, if your friends are constantly taking money out of the emotional bank account, whether that's truly emotional or it's time or it is physical money they're taking from you, if they're not giving back, then they're not real friends. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And whatever it takes to begin that clarity, you know, with real friends, you can have clarity. Mm-hmm. With real friends, you can talk through a difficult exchange. You can acknowledge that something is feeling a little one-sided here. And I think it's incumbent upon us to do that more and more, not only with our families, but also with our friends. So what did you absolutely get right? What would you for certain do again that you would maybe suggest that your LGBT peers or or, or people that you mentor do? Well, I think since, you know, I tell the young people whenever I speak to them, that they are my heroes because they are pushing through their truth early on to be able to maybe by their adult years be kind of on solid ground. But because I couldn't do that, I think what I did right was keep my eye on the prize around my success with the vision that I would, you know, in time be strong enough to address the elephant in the middle of the room. And so I was not out in college, for example, and there's a part of me that feels like I did that right Mm -hmm. because I think it might have been too distracting, to be honest, from the social angle, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And Mm -hmm. so I like that I stayed ambitious and focused, knowing that there was a better way and a better life. But just like anybody that's studying to be a doctor, doctors aren't partying every day. They're, you know, spending the time doing what they're doing towards the day that they can get the residency and then begin to pay off those loans, right? Right. I think how I did it based on where I came from was the right way to do it. And so I think for our young people, it's important that they just appraise their situation. Doesn't mean that you don't come out early but appraise your situation. So what I think I did right for what my situation was is I just waited a little bit to have that be a front burner concern. It was always on the stovetop, mm-hmm. but I waited until I began to use that front burner. I added that to the menu in my early 20s and I think it was the right thing. I think I did that right. I love that you say that and I'm going to go back to Stephen Covey because he also talks about thinking with the end in mind. And it sounds like what you did was we're a little bit more strategic in when you're going to take your risks and not let emotions or current events or whatever sort of dictate when you're going to come out or how you're going to let 
things affect your life, you kind of stayed more in control of that. And it sounds like that worked out to your benefit. Absolutely. Well, you know, it goes back to then when NDRE says, I am not my hair, or when Mm -hmm. someone says, I'm not defined by just being a gay man. I am black. I am this. I am that. It's that very thing. We are all these burners and we have to work all our burners concurrent. And sometimes you work uh, some burners more than others at certain times. And I think it's important that we early on, if we're coming from a space that is not fully a safe space, and if we're coming from a family that's not fully affirming. I think sometimes we have to check ourselves in that regard. You know, New York was a big liberation, as it is for many. You come from anywhere USA and you can come out in New York. It's true. But regardless of where you go, you don't have to go to New York or LA to come out. But wherever you go, even if you stay home, I think it's important to build a plan and build it with strategy in mind and not always with that emotional piece, because that emotional piece will, on its own, can just destroy you. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it can bite you. (laughs) Yeah. I think one of the other things I'll I'll say, Patrick, that I really appreciate about what you just said, the conversation you just had, was so much of it was focused on the fact that your reality, your success, and what happened in your life was dictated by you and not by anyone else. That's right. That it was your choice to become a success. And you put in the work and the effort to become that success. You didn't expect that, that because you had one piece of success, that all the other success should just come, or you felt like you deserved it because it seems like you've always been working for it because you know that that's what you need to do. In order to be a success, you have to work towards your success. So I appreciate you saying that. Absolutely. And being a success or wanting success for us meaning the whole community, the LGBTQ community at large, and and wanting our allies to find the compassion. Where the compassion may not be, my intention often is for them to find it. I can't be held to the reaction they're going to have every time I'm with them, but (laughs) it is always at the bottom of my heart that people will shift, that people will change. I remember my brother he sent me a scripture telling me I was just in essence telling me I'm going to hell for being gay. Okay. That's, we've heard all that before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And at this juncture, I was summer guardian for his kid, junior in college, interning at great network here in New York in marketing the division. It was a setup that I had arranged the uncle, the crazy gay uncle arranged. <laughs> and so I get this letter and that letter just turned me off. He was behind bars at the time, to be honest. And so. It just irritated me. And so what I did instead, you know, it's like I couldn't, you know, it's a handwritten letter I'm reading that came in the mail from jail. And I'm just looking at this letter and I'm just so irritated that in 2008, this is a conversation we're having. And I decided to write a letter back to him. I just listed every gay man that was a stand for your son while you were missing an action. Mm, and maybe that letter was a long letter and it was a (laughs) lot of gay men because these are all they were either friends of mine or people who i know were gay professionally who may have written a referral for my nephew there were people who the people who called me from the college to say do you think he'd be interested in doing this that person was gay i like i I outed people who probably didn't even want to be outed okay (laughs) and and i said so i listed all these people and i said so the only thing i would receive from you dear brother at this juncture, given I am also um, shelter, food, and board for your son this summer, is a thank you. Like, that's it. And I sent that back to him. And then my nephew came home and I said, your dad was my brother longer than he was your father. He, he <laughs> irritated me. <laughs> what he wrote. And this is what I wrote back. And my nephew went to the bathroom. He read both letters. He came out. He gave me, he handed the letters back. He said, well, it's all true. He was not upset. I said, I'm so sorry to include you in this. He said, it's all true, uncle. No worries. So my brother obviously did send in, you know, a few days later, another letter that apologized and then said what he needed to say, because I'm not going to have an argument with him about the Bible. I'm not even going to do that. Right. And so what I loved is that that moment, because of my reaction, I could have ignored it. I could have you know, I could have gone shopping, you know, I could have licked my wounds with retail therapy, <laughs> but I decided to just write him in a very honest, direct way. And I did it in bullets. So we did he didn't have to over retain. 
that moment is the moment that I want for most of us and more of us, you know, to be able to just be clear with our resistant loved ones in ways that you can and in ways that you can't, you move on and say, God bless them, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it's great too, because that's part of why David and I advocate for LGBT people to become even stronger, financially stronger, emotionally stronger, any kind of definition you can come up with, to be stronger individuals. Because the stronger we are as individuals, the stronger we are as a community, and the more progress we can make, regardless of who's president or whose mom won't accept us or whose brother is in jail and writing non-thank you letters to us. Absolutely, which is why time and resources, I spend a lot on those efforts before I'm ever going to get caught up in some you know, family drama about saying no for somebody to pay their light bill or something. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm gonna, <laughs> Exactly. I know that there's a bigger light that I'm trying to shed right. that has been dark for far too long. You know what I mean? Exactly. And come on. And most of these people are straight. They've had a hand up. Why are they asking me for money? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think we could talk for hours and we definitely need to have you back in the future. But for the sake of time, can you share with our audience uh, a little bit about the life of Riley, your blog? So my blog is a day in the life of Riley, pop culture and possibilities. I've been digesting my life, all of the red carpets, the uh, behind the scenes of the Oprah shoots and all of the other work that I do beyond that world. Someone told me that, you know, there was so much that was proprietary in what I was doing for the show that I couldn't talk about, that people were still interested in what I was doing when I wasn't working on the show. And so that has become now a platform. It is a blog that I update via social media and via Squarespace. I've now attracted partnerships and have begun to see the value of this Black gay man in the marketplace because um, with journalism converging as it is, uh, a lot of media downsizing and a lot of doing big things for cheaper, if you Mm -hmm. will, I've had to diversify. And one of those ways in which I've diversified is as a brand ambassador. So the blog has become a space and a place where brands come for support in bringing awareness to their efforts. And who do I attract? I attract the A-listers, but I also attract the underserved who know I'm going to treat their subjects around LGBTQ concerns and AIDS awareness and self-care. These are all types of things that I will speak about, things that I will cover. The divas call me, you know, not just (laughs) Diana, but Jodi Watley will call from time to time if she's got an underground mix that she wants me to share with my music lovers and the followers who love the things I love, which are pop culture, music, dance, that kind of thing. And so I've been fortunate to have that as a platform that has attracted more on-camera work for me, more event hosting, all those things that I thought I had to choose or that I would have to separate my way of being from are all kind of digested in my blog and in my social media presence to let folks know that you can live your best life just as it is. And it's all in the lens by which you experience it. And it's all in the lens by which you chronicle it. And I try to experience and chronicle from a, from the space of possibilities and, and, and positivity. That's awesome. And, and I would suggest anybody who's wants to become a business person, anybody who's looking to become an independent entrepreneur, that to visit Patrick's site, to follow him on social media, watch what he's doing because he's figuring out the economy is changing. The market that he's used to is changing and he's figuring out how to navigate that and still stay successful. And that's something that I think all of us can learn from. So maybe in the future podcast, we need to have you come in and talk more about the business side of things. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. No, it's, it's one, well, you know, my big line, my mom, God rest her soul, her favorite song was one day at a time, sweet Jesus. And so whenever people are wowed by this, that, or the other, when I get a booking, I say one booking at a time, sweet Jesus, because <laughs> it literally is that. And I've only yep. just in the recent months been able to take that beat to really look at what's been working, what's not been working. And I can see this body of, of new business and new revenue that I'm attracting that is kind of next level. And I, and I like it nice. and I like it and, I, and awesome. I'm responding to it and I want to build on that. So it's important to look at what's working and what's not working and, and then adapt your energy accordingly. So I, I'd be happy to come back and talk about some of the tricks of the life of life. <laughs> Absolutely. Any projects or shows or anything you want to plug that our listeners should look out for to, to watch or listen to? Well, I'll tell you one thing that I'm uh, that is in and out and happening, um, a film that I shot. Uh, it's a film debut. 
the Shaquille yeah. O'Neal executive produced urban drama Steps. And it is on the film festival circuit, critically acclaimed. My part, I play Rudy, who is a black, gay, army veteran from the Don't Ask, Don't Tell time of the military, who has come back to Jersey City with a uh, respiratory illness that he acquired in the Gulf War. And in this tale that's about forgiveness and it underscores urban plight, my character provides levity. But what I have learned is that Rudy is considered kind of a moral compass. He brings just the amount of light and heart that the film needs to be not depressing. And so I find that it's I'm not only a fan of the LGBTQ people who have seen the film, but I, you know, I'm always uh, having to uh, a line of straight rough dudes wanting to take pictures with Rudy at the end of the screening because they have really been endeared to the character. And it's another example of if I had listened to those inner voices and the shame I might have thought for two seconds I would bring my family, I wouldn't have shot that movie and I wouldn't benefit from seeing LGBTQ validated in a rich way and in a heartfelt way. And this is a character whose story may not be unlike many stories out there that haven't been told. So I'm thrilled to be a vessel of that. So that's something to look out for. It's on the festival circuit. The filmmakers are working a production deal. So we'll see what happens for how you'll be able to see it, whether on demand or in theaters. And I'm also going to be attending the National Association of Black Journalists Convention in August, August 9th through 13th, as the brand ambassador for Miss Jessie's. It's a wonderful hair care product line for uh, coily, curly hair. And Miss Jessie's has been a big sponsor of my all-star karaoke event. We're not up now. (laughs) It's a big open mic popular night that I do in Harlem. We'll hopefully be back up in the fall. But what I'm doing with her is, as a brand ambassador, working with her to enhance her profile And she is compensating me accordingly. And so we have a great relationship and partnerships that we're taking to New Orleans for the Black Journalist Convention, including a big event, the NABJ Arts and Entertainment Task Force Reception, which is sponsored by OWN TV. And it will feature the casts of Queen Sugar and Greenleaf, which are big hits on the Oprah Network currently. And uh, Miss Jessie's bags will be given out to all the guests. So I'm working all my life of Riley Synergies in under one roof that week. <laughs> nice. You're going to be spread thin and stressed out. That week, huh? <laughs> yeah, I know. I, and, and someone just called me today and said, what about karaoke? And I'm like, I, wait, let's make it <laughs> next year. I'm like, I don't know if I can do that too. Maybe yeah. ad hoc after a few glasses of wine. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. So in addition to A Day in the Life of Riley, where else can our listeners find you on social media and elsewhere? Well, let me see. Instagram, Patrick.Riley, R-I-L-E-Y. Twitter, Patarak, P-A-T-A-R-A-C-K. Facebook, Patrick L. Riley. And Instagram, Patrick.Riley. Eventually, I'm going to standardize all that stuff. I need a millennial out there to come in and <laughs> But yes, so find millenn- me and please, you know, we always have something going on from spot appearances to when we're back up with All Stair Karaoke. You can see those dates. You can find out more about Steps, the film. I'm always working on something. So when my projects do come up on Oprah or Wendy Williams or BET NBC, I share the links via my social media and or you can see those things and tune into those things. So it's a very active site and I use my assets, meaning my file footage. You know, we've been taking pictures and video and great shots. So whenever, uh, you know, if Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody came out, I'm going to show Kiki Wyatt and me singing I Want to Dance with Somebody at Oscar Karaoke <laughs> last year, you know, that kind of Yeah. So it's very vibrant. Life of Riley is vibrant. And so I'd love to have as many of you be a part of the experience as uh, is possible. Nice. Well, Mr. Riley, thank you so much for coming on our show and sharing us your wealth of knowledge and entertainment for our audience. We, I think this has been great. And I think it's going to inspire and, and motivate a lot of people. Yeah. I hope so. And you two just keep inspiring. I'm thrilled to have met you and i'm thrilled that our um synergy is expanding now with queer money so thank, thank you me. very much thank you. appreciate it yeah i hope that uh, someday again in the near future we get to share a stage with you or be in the same room yeah we'll and, make that happen likewise, likewise. Yes. i'm going to take a special trip i've got to figure out how to get to denver soon so yes, we're going to work out something hopefully face to face sounds good thank you again patrick we really appreciate you coming and sharing your story with our queer money listeners As a listener, I'm sure that you have felt 
many of the same things that Patrick has. There have been times in your life where you were scared or you were jubilant, and all of that plays into who you are and who you are becoming. It's awesome to have examples like Patrick that can help us move forward every day. And I appreciate many of the things that Patrick has shared with us, how deep within him he cared not only about his own future, but the future of so many other peoples in his life, and that he crafted his life in a manner that would allow him to be not only an example, a support, but also allowing himself to thrive. Thanks again, Patrick, for sharing your story. We look forward to working with you again in the future. And as always, we want to remind you that our lives get better when we take care of ourselves, not only emotionally, but also financially. If you need support and help taking care of yourself financially and getting a financial plan that works for you, we encourage you to reach out to our sponsor, MassMutual, at MassMutual.com. They can help you create a plan that will allow you to thrive financially. Okay. We just serviced you. Now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay. (laughs) (laughs) Would help me if I had a personal chef made all all my healthy meals for me. So instead I'll have a Snickers tonight for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) The other end, I like the butts, so... (laughs) Uh,